Hello. Miles, hi. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Happy Friday. Thank you so much. Happy Friday to you. Hmm. Um, are you in the city of Los Angeles currently? I am. Yesterday I was in Kansas City, and today oh, wow. I'm back in L.A. I will be in L.A. tomorrow for a a wedding of the home of sexuals, which is amazing. Yes, that's right. And I was going to ask you if you were just like in and out. Is this like a day and a half trip or are you going to hang out for a little bit? I It's both, which is really exciting. <laughs> I, I am going for the wedding. And then after the wedding, my... Chicago besties, Brent and Steve, who we both adore, are invited me to join them for a road trip. We leave Monday morning to go to Joshua Tree. Yes. Which I've never been to, and I'm so pumped. Have you been to Joshua Tree? I have not yet. It, it is. It's just on the list. I'm so pumped. So we're going to spend a couple of days there, and then we're bopping on up to... Do you know about the Channel Islands? I do know about the Channel Islands. Big fan. Okay, so we're bopping up there uh, for like one night and then going to hike back on down and catch flights out on Thursday where I will fly to Texas to see my grandma. Wow, that Mm -hmm. is very sweet. I'm so happy that is happening and uh, as we all should be, I'm a big fan of your grandmother. So of course, glad you're getting to connect with her. Juju got fan mail after my book. Uh, she should. She deserved it. <laughs> this sweet lady named Mary Jo, who makes like custom jewelry, uh, made her a red bracelet because red's her favorite color. Uh, and these are like nice things. Like they sell at places like I don't know. Is Barney's a thing? It is. Okay. The, depart- the department store. Yeah, I think they are like they sell for like hundreds of dollars, and she just like made one, like made this bling for Juju. <laughs> and shipped it on down with a handwritten note. It was the cutest thing. Oh, that is very precious. And I like everything about it. Well, I'm excited about our conversation today about fave queer books, the wild, wild publishing industry as it relates to gays. Mm-hmm. And uh, evidently you have come with some questions of your own. <laughs> yes, I did tell you that. If you if you want to be in the driver's seat, I feel like you're going to have a lot of interesting insights into this conversation. Well, I can definitely do that. Um, I actually am interested, though, if maybe you could go first and talk. You know, you say wild industry of publishing. And I do think that anybody who writes anybody who is trying to write, anybody who's in that sort of like literary ecosystem knows what you're talking about. But Uh I'm wondering if you could maybe spell that out a little Mm. more for folks who are not as familiar. And also, I just want to hear you talk about it in your own words. Okay. So this is an interesting subject because there are a lot of misconceptions out there. Uh, The first thing I would say is that the process of the process of writing a book is very hard. The process of getting a book published is nearly impossible. 
And I think that's true for everybody. I think like the, the whole world has changed tremendously and the publishing industry over the last like 10, 20 years with the internet is just like completely upended. So it's not just for queer people, but as with any big shifts going on in society, it's going to affect people from marginalized communities a little bit more acutely mm-hmm. in the same way that, you know, when we see a crisis of refugees, it's going to affect queer people, people from minorities, ethnic minorities, religious minorities in various communities are going to experience the hardships of an impossible situation more acutely. So uh, not that these are in any way the same, but just acknowledging there's always going to be like those layers. Mm-hmm. The way that this, I, I feel like in some ways I have a grip on what's what it's like to be publishing as a queer person. And in some ways I don't because on the one hand, when I went to sell my book or by sell my book, I mean, tried to get a publisher to publish it. Mm-hmm. And those that can happen for anywhere from about fifteen hundred dollars that's spread out over the course of about two to three years to uh, $500,000, mm-hmm. which writers will sometimes get for book deals. And um, mine was closer to 1500 than 500000 um, <laughs> And so when I went to try to find a publisher, the first round of pitching, people were like – Unfortunately, gay books just don't sell. We think you're a great writer. We think the story's really needed. And also, there's just not a market for it. And I was like, okay, that stings. But, and then the second time, a few years later, once things had changed a little bit, people tended to be like, okay, there is like space for a couple. LGBTQ books, and unfortunately, this story is too much like this other one. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't. It was just that they had also published a gay person who maybe had like dipped their toe in conversion therapy. They, or... they spent a week at uh, camp. So, yeah, exactly. Something like that. And and then their mother rescued them. <laughs> and it ended with. A mom, like, flying like a bat out of hell up in her minivan, like, slinging open the door going, get in, honey! Mm-hmm. And then riding off into the sunset. And it was awesome. And, like, so, like, that, it was a really, like, those are important, beautiful stories. And also, um, that is just, to say that, like, the book I was writing was the same, mm-hmm. uh, was just, like, untrue and that every single publisher out there like when when books are pitched they're pitched to like 50 different publishing houses right so there's no way if i just look at the number of lgbtq books that like each house had a book that was that similar Mm -hmm. so we're getting to where like they do want like a book by somebody that is writing a memoir about growing up black in the United States and somebody who's writing a book about growing up queer or growing up queer in the South or their experience transitioning when they were working as a, like, they were a C-level executive in an industry and then came out as trans. Like, they want a story that is going to sort of like fill in that slot, but 
then we're all kind of fighting to be that one book. Mm-hmm. And that creates other tensions and dynamics that aren't helpful. And also it was kind of like we were talking about last week around like common trans stories. So many of the ones we heard were, were very much real stories, but also like extremely binary of Mm -hmm. like, I knew I was in the wrong body at age four and was going to jump out of the window if Mm -hmm. I couldn't transition. So, um, we need robust, like a robust sort of library of stories. And, um, with that, I, I will say there is something to the fact that they don't seem to sell. Like they're not usually like queer books aren't, you know, runaway bestsellers. And that is because most people are not queer in the country and world. And, it is, we're we're doing this these labors of loves for the small minority of people who uh, will be moved and changed by our by our words, and so I I think like I don't know that in the same way that institutions haven't served us necessarily when it comes to whether we look at the church or when we look at like uh, the ways that it's the challenges we run into with like medical institutions and doctors. And it's actually, there's like a, a queer sort of primary care medical center in Brooklyn that I'm excited to start seeing because they just ask totally different questions than you get from like primarily straight Mm -hmm. uh, medical care. So Across the board, like, I'm wondering, should we continue to try to work within those structures or should we just do what somebody like your friend Kevin Garcia did, which was like, he just, they just, he, they? Uh, yeah, I, I, they's more, I think, representative, but um, mm. they'll respond to so they kind, kind pronouns. They just, <laughs> anything with kindness. They just self-published their book and we're like, I'm not dealing with that whole industry because it's not for me. It wasn't built for me. It doesn't have my people and our best interest in mind. And so that's also a model. That little person that you, yes, good for you. And I don't know how that panned out in terms of, you know, like, I don't know how the, that panned out in the numbers, but I'm like, that seems like also a great model. Like, we are going to need some new models, period, across the board. And I think queer people especially will probably be needing to get creative about how we go about storytelling mm-hmm. to reach the people that are wanting to, you know, engage with us and mm-hmm. vice versa. And, yeah, I don't know. Those, those are some meandering reflections on the industry. Yeah. No, that's – I. exactly the context I wanted to have. And I think, um, you know, you you bring up Kevin and that theology kills in particular. And I, we would have these conversations about uh, exactly what you've described, being told by agents and being told by publishers, this phrase, the market is saturated. Saturated. The the LGBTQ (laughs) book market is saturated. And 
you know, I have a lot of uh, jokes to make about other forms of saturation, you know, in the book market, you know, for different stories. But, um, you know, to stay on topic here, <laughs> I, I remember thinking, like, who gets, decide, gets to decide the point of saturation? Mm-hmm. Um, and Aren't we saturated with devotionals? We are saturated with too much, Julie. <laughs> um, too much that does nothing for anyone. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, yeah, that was always my question. Who, what are the metrics for saturation? And I think it sort of comes back to this idea that you mentioned that people are looking just at like hard numbers. They're looking at bottom line sales for different books. And I've always wondered what that means for books and stories um, and other pieces of media that from their inception intend uh, to be something the pe- that benefits the people, <laughs> you know, folk like grassroots, you know, more type of uh, thinking and acting and being in the world. And, um, you know, to, to what extent, like the open source model, it's not, it's not, it doesn't lead you to a paycheck, but um, usually. It, I think it can do something, um, not just in terms of sales, but in terms of who gets to encounter your work. Mm-hmm. And it makes me think about music. Mm. Um, and it makes me, it's funny that two people are coming to mind to me um, when, as I'm thinking about this idea. But um, famously, uh, Derek Webb mm. oh. uh, and Chance the Rapper. Mm-hmm. Um do an initial free release of an album. Mm. And a part of that is they want as many people as possible to listen to it mm-hmm. and to have the music freely to enjoy it and to have fun. But they've also demonstrated that you do a limited free release and then it actually changes the way that that book goes on to sell or mm. that album, I guess, in their particular case, goes on to sell. And I've wondered if anybody has ever attempted that, like, in the literary space. Interesting. Um, because I do, I, I know of foundations and, like, you know, random rich people underwriting um, the purchase of, like, thousands of books that they imagine are going to benefit people and then giving those out for free. But that's mm-hmm. a very different thing than, like, a true free like limited release. Yeah. Really interesting. And I've also wondered um, about the way that audiobook has changed hmm. how people relate to literature. Uh, and I just don't understand quite like the business side enough of that to know whether or not uh, downloads are a part of how publishers think about sales. Mm-hmm. Um, but then I certainly know that they cannot fully track, um, who is listening to that book or who is, mm-hmm. you know, I, I would still say reading, who is mm-hmm. reading that book, even if they are listening to it. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that's happening more now than it ever has before. And maybe I'm wrong about that. No, but, it's true. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, d- I do think the audio book is, is also changed things. And, um, yeah, I, I really believe that for folks who have a story to put out into the world, one, it is worth writing independent of this 
industry uh, arbitrarily deciding if the market is saturated or not around your story um, and that it's therapeutic and it's cathartic just to be able to put you know uh, those experiences you know onto a page so um, mm-hmm. yeah I to me yeah. self-publishing uh, and and self-publishing that goes well like it has for Kevin will really um, go a long way in terms of uh, democratizing mm-hmm. um, literature mm-hmm. I, I think that's maybe I'm naive but that is my take on it mm-hmm. yeah yeah I agree and I also think that what will help us have more stories is not relying on that being your there's in the same way that I think I've talked about the quote that says like when your faith is tied to your finances you'll lose one or the other mm-hmm. um I think that it's important to separate your own financial well-being from your storytelling mm-hmm. and your that? <laughs> because it um y- the people that are really successful writers are brands and mm-hmm. it's the people who crank out book after book and are on you know on all the social media all the time sharing their kids, sharing their lives, you know, just like always, always, always hustling and performing. Um, And that's not an indictment on them. It's just what you do. It's what you do when you're in public in that kind Mm -hmm. of way. And um, I'm not sure that's good for anybody. I'm not sure that anybody has that much content that's helpful. Right. Both sharing online and a book every year. Right. Um, or even every other year. I think like it takes time to sort of cultivate to for, for like to be able to reflect on any meaningful topic with wisdom and complexity and then translate that into writing takes usually a lot more time than crank the cranking out machine sort of right. allows for. So I think the I feel a lot of joy and freedom in not needing of just like knowing I'm going to work other jobs and whatever writing I do will be a labor of love. And then it doesn't matter how my book sells because what matters only is like, did this reach people mm-hmm. that needed a story like this and felt a little bit less alone or started asking new questions or, you know, maybe felt a sense of hope and possibility for a future that before felt like death. And so mm-hmm. that's, all that matters. And so every time I hear from those people or see that review or don't hear from those people and just know that out there in the universe that's happening in Trinidad or in Alabama or wherever, like that's it. And I am earning my money from a restaurant or from copywriting or whatever else I do in my life. Mm -hmm. And, and that's the whole, that's what success is for me. And so I feel like that's also going to be an important way for us to continually (laughs) be able to tell the meaningful stories that matter and to sort of sidestep the, the barricades put up for us by capitalism and the industry and the publishing industry in general. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think all of the problems in literature, you know, publishing specifically 
are also mirrored in music. They're mirrored in television. They're mirrored in film. And um, I absolutely, I, I do think we are slowly <laughs> building toward a tipping point. In, yeah, in and we do have way more stories and diversity. And you know, um, there are a lot of novels now that just have queer characters. And yeah. that was actually when we get to our our little more direct book chat. I did want mm-hmm. to talk about one of those. It's not a queer story, but there's a little person in the book that I was like, I love this story for a lot of reasons, and they are one of them. Oh, yes. Um, and I love that, and I think that's really awesome. And, you know, it could be that the people don't want books that are by queer people directly about queer issues or queer stories. They want beautiful stories and they're happy to have queer people woven into them. And I think that's actually a huge step forward. And I would love to be a part of reading, sharing, writing those kinds of stories too. Um, much more. I don't ever want to write a book directly. Well, I don't want to say that who knows what's going to happen. We don't know who are we coming, but Mm -hmm. for the most part, I think that's actually a a healthy progression. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Agree. Cosign. Well, I do want to talk to you about the memoir, Um, not because I want to interview you on the book, um, but because I think this ties really well into what we're discussing here and about this uh, little little show we're doing in general. Um, I had a memory when you were in most serious talks about this book, you know, coming to be. And I can't remember if it was with an agent or a publisher, but somebody told you, Julie, you need to read Eat, Pray, Love. <laughs> and, and you responded to them the way you just responded to me. And they s- said something to the effect of like, hear me out. This is the best-selling memoir of all time. Mm-hmm. So Elizabeth Gilbert did something. I want you to explore what that something is. Mm-hmm. My question is, um, if you would reflect a little bit about that request um, and why you reacted the way that you did. And the follow-up question is, did you actually read it? And then the last question is, what did you learn from reading the best-selling memoir of all time, if you did, in fact, read it? I think I did read five pages. (laughs) (laughs) I do. (laughs) Um, I'm fundamentally opposed to (laughs) what Elizabeth Gilbert did. Um, Oh, like like the trip? Like, what do you mean? uh, Yeah, I mean, so Elizabeth Gilbert... um, had the means to quit her job and after going through a divorce and go travel around the world um, and, you know, went to, I'm going to, I didn't read it, so I don't have the exact <laughs> basics, but I did read enough about her story, even from her and what she was doing. And it would be like, go to a sort of meditation center in India and then talk about how transformed she was by 
this sort of, you know, monk she met. And it was just very much like a sort of tourist experience that was like a focused on like herself in the midst of a bunch of different communities around the world. And, um, unrelatable in terms of like, that's just not, most people don't have the means to do that. And then if we do, I'd be more interested in like those people, hearing from those people about Mm -hmm. their communities and about their spiritual practices or whatever it might be. And not how Elizabeth Gilbert benefited from spending some weeks there, you know, Mm -hmm. and like what she took from it. And so in general, like I, if that's the best selling memoir of all time, then like I don't want to write the best selling memoir. Like I'm not, <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I'm wondering. So what you just said, like this lack of relatability, mm-hmm. um, because I'm with you. Just in terms of like the, you know, the, looking at like the class privilege, like part of this, mm-hmm. but. What what is going on uh, in publishing, you know, in storytelling, where a story so utterly unrelatable becomes the <laughs> best-selling memoir of all time? Yeah. What do you think? Can you reflect on that a little bit? Some theories you might have. I mean, maybe it's we we want. There are a lot of reasons we turn to stories and books in particular, and one of them is an escape and to have a sort of fantasy experience. And I, I don't know if that is what the draw was there. Like I, a book like mine is not going to offer you much of an escape or a fantasy. It's going to be very much, it's going to to cause you to look at your own pain to feel maybe a sense of guilt or shame, depending on your social location and relationship to the kinds of communities I engage with maybe cause you to question. It's, it's only going to take you further into your life. Mm. And that is not a best selling experience. It's, it's, it's something that's kind of hard to sign up for it. You're signing up to do some difficult work just by reading it. And I think that's a, stark difference between the two books yeah yeah and for me to to take my story and and create a fantasy is to do an injustice to the people who are reading it Mm-hmm. yeah yeah i mean so a question oh I... can i say another thing on that yes um one interesting thing So you read my book and my editor, um, you know how there's like the wedding and it's sort of the end of the wedding chapter is about how I wore a sleeveless dress and sort of like bore my Mm -hmm. scars with pride and like I survived essentially, right? Right. My editor wanted me to end it there and I insisted on having the last chapter where I basically talk about how I was really struggling with a lot of things and questions that had come up for me as, as like my, I began to sift through my baggage once I was sort of like in a safer place. Mm -hmm. Um, 
issue like challenges I had and unresolved feelings about Ricky, unresolved feelings about my mom and like the heartache around that and ultimately unresolved feelings about my faith. And she was like, she was not a fan of that. She, I mean, she thought it was beautiful, but she was just like, um, I want you to resolve the tension. Yeah. The tension mm-hmm. is resolved. The story is finished. Mm-hmm. And then it feels like there's this big sort of postscript. And I was like, yeah, this is honest. Like that story did have an arc and that's really beautiful. But my story is ongoing in a way that is much more human than would be implied if we just ended with this triumphant experience of the wedding. Mm. And so I say all that to say there are just these decisions at every point in terms of like, what did Elizabeth Gilbert do and what did I do? Um, it's just, there, there are things that, um, like sort of scratch itches for people and make them feel good and, and that should happen in the course of engaging other human stories because there are parts of it that are going to be uplifting or, or moving. But right. also, like, I think that that would have really – if I had done that, it would have made people either A, B, think that, like, getting married will save them mm-hmm. and heal them and that become the goal or – made them escape into a fantasy of say what's wrong with me if I haven't experienced that or, you know, all kinds of things that are just not actually going to be transformative in the way that I think really beautiful storytelling can be. And if less people read my book, but more people are, moved in a really deeply human way, then that's more success for me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. I, and it's a part of some of the questions I've had in writing a memoir is to what extent uh, did you or are writers, you know, pressured to resolve um, past experiences in, in that process, some of which, like you've named, have not fully resolved and may never fully resolve. Um, I, because I do think that there's, <laughs> in reading, you know, your book, uh, there are some reflections where I felt like, oh, that chapter ended nicely. <laughs> uh-huh. And I have first-person knowledge, you know, that everything in here is true, mm-hmm. but not everything true is in here. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So how did, what, what did it look like for you to sort of balance that and to be able to pick out, um, you know, what, how did you work with your editor? I guess is maybe my question behind the question to choose like what makes it in and what do you leave on the cutting floor? So, One thing that I continually had to ask myself throughout the process was I had to come back to I was writing a story about the evangelical church's response to queer people over the last couple decades as I have encountered it, which is different than my life story. Yes. Okay. That's an important distinction um, that I don't think at least I would have naturally made. Yeah. And 
overall, so I had to look at the overall movement. What were the main, who were the main big players and what were my, how did I engage with that? Right. And this is part of why I didn't include much about like spiritual friendships philosophy. Right. Uh, spiritual friendship is the group we both know about who I talk about when I'm in the celibacy stage of Wheaton and Gabe Lyons and Q trying to co-op that movement. Right. And I could have gone more in depth about how transformative their actual the spiritual friendships, actual ideas were for me and still are to me in terms of the possibilities of deep abiding friendships outside of the institution of marriage. Mm -hmm. And if it had been my story only, I would have, but for what was really important for the story about the evangelical church's response to the queer community over the last couple decades is how every time queer people presented in a new way or new information was learned about queer people, they would respond in a way that was either uh, erasing or co-opting or using as a mouthpiece. Like those were to me what felt like the really most relevant things to move that story forward. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I guess the way I hear that is your story is really just an entry point into a larger social critique. Like that's exactly. what the book actually is. Exactly. Yeah. And this is part of why we need way more stories and why the whole, like, we already have a gay book or one that's similar is is so upsetting because this is one entry point into a larger social critique. Mm -hmm. And it would be a totally different story if it was written by maybe somebody uh, in my own community who had moved – with his family from Mexico when right. they were two years old. Right. Their experience and their entry point into the same community would be totally different and blow open new new windows and new questions. And the idea that, you know, and, and we do see, like, the the way race and class show up in the small number of stories that we do, you know, that we get to hear from um is notable and right. we have we we uh we we are all losing as a result of that and so right. that's just worth mentioning this was one entryway and we need many many more yeah definitely i'm down for the movement so you know <laughs> hoping hoping that we get to see that um so Let's talk about some books. I would love to know what you're reading. I might circle back to like follow-up questions about the memoir, mm -hmm. um, but I'm like sitting here staring at a small stack of books on my desk that oh my make me very excited to talk about. So I mm -hmm. would love to know what some of those are for you um, before we forget about it. <laughs> it's interesting. Like I, I know that we were just talking about how queer books, like we're seeing – a rise in the numbers. And I also still feel like the books that are most meaningful me for, to me are either like old books, like, you know, Audre Lorde's, um, is it Zami? Is that how you say it? Zami uh, or Zami? Zami? I'm going to say Zami. Long or short A, you know, I'm not sure. <laughs> it's always a big question, but like, I love that book so much. It's one of my favorite books of all time. And therefore also one of my favorite queer books of all time. Yeah. 
And so you really got to dig back into the archive still for, for the, the best ofs. Um, I also feel like the books that the queer books I'm currently reading are like you have and end up ordering it from like Indiana University Press. Yes. And <laughs> you know, they're like academic. they're academic. Yeah. Uh, it's like leaning at, at the very least. Yeah. And so it will be like a, a book of essays on like by like 14 different people yes. who experience like an expansiveness in their gender in various right. ways. Like, so those tend to be the best kinds of books. I'm thinking in the faith space, I really enjoyed a book called Queer Christianities. That's my favorite. Mm. It's one of my favorite books I've read on the LGBTQ Christian experience mm -hmm. um, because I, I really like the idea of putting a bunch of different people and theologies in conversation with each other mm -hmm. and just kind of being able to locate yourself and feel fears or feel revulsions or different things along the way. I think it's really an insightful experience. Mm -hmm. um, and in terms of novels, did you read Detransition Baby last year? Uh, I did not read it, but I am very familiar. Uh, I'm curious. I was going to be really curious to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah. Uh, do you have any interest in reading it or does that feel? Yeah, I, I would read it. I would read it. I would read it. <laughs> yeah. Um, I really enjoyed it. And also I am not a transgender person in the way that it is lived out in the book. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure I understand that there would be, you would, you would come to it with a lens and see layers that I might not have, but I enjoyed it. And I liked the conversations it brought up in a bunch of different directions. Yeah. Um, yeah. Those are a few queer books in terms of other books that I'm reading. I'm currently reading, um, a Taste of Power by Elaine Brown about her experience in the early Black Panther movement. Yeah. And it's fascinating um, being a woman who was like in the ranks, like the, at the highest level of leadership. It's so interesting of just like how, and like, you know, the experience of sexism, misogyny and, um, like the racial terrorism they experienced from police in the United States. And then also the international sort of grassroots international activism they were doing and networking. There's just a lot of layers that are fascinating, the critiques of capitalism. And then also she's a beautiful storyteller who really reflects on the ways that she wasn't able to love her child. Well, who, Honestly, she didn't want to get pregnant, and she had this calling to a larger social movement that involved millions of children, yeah. and we don't see men reflecting very much on on their inability to both be a super present parent to a kid and also do work that's going to do that kind of work uh, that's like changing society, and it's beautiful right. to hear her reflect honestly on those kinds of things honestly on ways that like various uh white people in her life actually like woke her up to the beauty of being a black woman and sort of were part of her racial like awakening to her own blackness yeah. even though they 
were themselves like so problematic and like not just being like I came to these conclusions, but we'll like really talk honestly about the nuances of all kinds of things. It's just a beautiful, beautiful book. And then I'm also reading, um, just finishing up the tiny, tiny little Thich Nhat Hanh book. Um, what's it called? The Miracle of Mindfulness, Yeah, which is really nice. And I think that like those, pra- those principles really like help me get through my days in a way that makes them more alive and makes me feel more awake and meaningfully. What about you, Miles? I love it. Um, (laughs) Yeah, we we cannot overlook the importance of little books. Um, (laughs) We truly can't. (laughs) I, I think some of like the most transformative material presents itself in what are little books and by little books i don't just mean page numbers i mean their actual physical size like tiny they get printed yeah and to me that is a signal that this is um a resource it's a tool it's something to carry around Mm. with you Mm -hmm. um and so when i see a little book i'm always like oh what do you have to say to me Mm -hmm. um because i i think there's a real um there's both something like spiritual and like some it, you almost like utilitarian about it too. Like this is a tool for you. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's why it's miniature. Beautiful. Um, yes. I also just like little things. Um, <laughs> you do like little things. I do appreciate a tiny something. Um, so yes, I'm happy to hear that. Uh, it's something you, you have in your life and does good things for you. Mm-hmm. Um, well, my, what, uh, List. I was actually, I have a, a friend who is writing a memoir right now, and I told him, I was like, well, lucky for you, Goodreads is my favorite social media, and Aww. I do have lots of books I both like to read, and then as a reflection on the book, it, I'll oftentimes write a review. Mm, um, I gotta go find you on Goodreads. I reviewed your book. I saw that. It was the <laughs> sweetest thing. I was like, um, yeah, I try to offer, a re- I like, I like my review to be like, this is who I think this book is for. Here are some things I liked about it. Amazing. Um, that's my style of review. Um, but yeah, I, I have some books here that I revisit on my list I'm about to share. And then I have some books that I, just recently read that I would like to share. Mm. Um, Some of them are academic and others of them are not. Um, My, well, okay. I have two academic books I want to talk about, but one of them is actually a a resistance to academic books. So it's not really academic. And I'll talk a little bit more about that. But the first book um, is... Uh, Black on Both Sides, A Racial History of Trans Identity by Mm. C. Riley Snorton. This is an academic book, Mm -hmm. um, but it is um, this exploration of uh, the histories of blackness and trans identity, um, mostly from the 19th century forward. Mm. But um, really clearly spells out uh, the the connection between white supremacy and specifically anti-blackness 
and um, anti-trans thinking, transphobia. Um, it, it's very powerful, very compelling, but it, it is an academic book. Um, mm-hmm. So that was great for me, and I really appreciate it. Um, and sort of tangential to that is a tiny book, mm-hmm. um, but it, it's called uh, Decolonizing Trans Slash Gender 101. I think it's only like 80 pages and it's by um, B, like singular letter. Mm -hmm. uh, And the last name is Binohan, B-I-N-A-O-H-A-N. And they are writing as an academic who is specifically trying to resist the like academic paradigm of these topics of Mm. gender, gender expression, gender identity so on and so forth. And um, the book started from uh, the writer's reflections on Tumblr. So Mm. they took their conversations that they were having on Tumblr uh, with colleagues and put them into this book. And so there's a lot of ways there's like this explicit um, opposition, like Mm. to academic writing and academic presentation of these topics. And they are also very funny. Um, and so it was both an enlightening and a fun read. It's something that I walked away from thinking like, uh, wow, like I find myself in kind of like ethics alignment with this person. And like they say something that I will probably need to sit with for a very long time mm. to figure out what my own orientation is to these topics. So it's Interesting. A, a, a lot about how colonialism and cultural imperialism probably more generally um, has affected all of the ways that we talk about gender. Hmm. Um, Even in like progressive communities, uh, communities that we would recognize as like affirming and celebrating Mm -hmm. um, trans and gender nonconforming identities. So that one also a good one. And like I said, it is physically shorter than most books and it's like 80 No, actually, let me look at it. My kind of book, honestly. Okay, it is 130 pages, but, like, again, it's not written like an academic book, so there are a lot of, there are totally blank pages, there are pages that have one sentence on the page, you know. Mm. Mm -hmm. Here for that. that. Yeah. Um, So, great book, highly recommend it. Uh, The other one I wanted to talk about was a collection of essays uh, by uh, Daniel uh, Lavery? Lavery? Oh, obsessed. Yes. Okay. So the book is something that may shock and discredit you. Yes. Uh, And he he wrote it under his previous last name. So if you're looking it up, it's it's Daniel uh, Mallory Ortberg. But so funny. I laughed. I'm obsessed with them. I laughed at, I mean, I laugh at all of his writing. Like he's mm-hmm. just a very funny person. Um, but there are just so many references he makes to pop culture and to the Bible and, mm-hmm. to, uh, and kind of like talking through trans masculine identity in a way I just had not seen represented in mm. other literature uh, mm-hmm. or media for that matter. And I may have to take that on my trip. Yeah. It, like I, 
I just truly was like cackling, like reading <laughs> this book. And Amazing. I have not done that in a very long time. So thank you, Daniel, for that. Um, and I think of, I, I will say there are certainly like parts of that, which I understand why somebody would be like, that's so specific. Like it's <laughs> so particular and it, that's true. But like he has had a particular life and a particular experience that I did find a lot of resonance with. Mm-hmm. And so um, I, I think anybody would be able to laugh at the jokes that mm-hmm. he's making. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't have to just be like a, you know, if you know, kind of thing. Totally. Um, and if you hang on to his writing, he loops back, he, he loops back around to something else that you do relate to enough. Yes. That's hilarious and yes. insightful. Um, and yeah, I love how granular he gets. Yes. Or granular. How do you say that yes. word? Julie, I'm not the one to ask. <laughs> you're, you're the, the English master over there. <laughs> yeah. So that's lots of Googling and wikipedia uh, um, I have two more books and yes. these two books are not queer books, but mm-hmm. I want to talk about why I still felt like they were resonant. Um, mm-hmm. One is um, Braiding Sweetgrass mm. um, by Robin Wall Kimmerer. I have um, it. I haven't read it. Yes, yes. So subtitle, Indigenous Wisdom, Scientific Knowledge, and the Teachings of Plants. Mm. Um, and it, it it's gorgeous writing. It's informative. And it, I cried like several times reading mm. it, like incredibly spiritual without trying. Mm. And yeah, or maybe that's not the best phrase to use, but like, just like, I, I loved reading it and not just because of like, you know, my own like reclamation of like indigeneity, but, um, because it, you know, she really puts in perspective that so many of, uh, the ongoing trauma we're living in is rooted and how profoundly disconnected we are from from the land. Mm-hmm. Um, and when we intentionally explore that and try to dig into it, how much healing uh, can come, you know, from that process. So mm-hmm. um, definitely recommended reading for everyone. Like this to me is like the type of book that um, r- like very obviously sort of like transcends like its particularities and speaks totally. like, to all persons. <laughs> and I've um, heard all kinds of people like yes. respond to it the way you did. So that, yes. that feels true. Yes. Um, and so then the last book I am going to mention is uh, The Vanishing Half by Britt Bennett. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Uh, which is a novel, a fiction, a fictional time for us, which mm-hmm. um, I, I only dabble in. Um, mm-hmm. I am interested to hear you talk a little bit more about your relationship to fiction in a second, but um, this is Brit's uh, second book. Uh, The Mm -hmm. Mothers was her first. It's also an excellent book, but The Vanishing Half in particular was so captivating to me, not just because she's a good writer, not just because it's an incredibly um, interesting and compelling story, but... um, how she is exploring uh, blackness in this book mm-hmm. is so interesting. 
um, because it's really sort of uh, looking at this idea of like, quote unquote, passing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And light skinned like experiences. Um, um, it, it's also funny. It's also sweet. And uh, there is a character in this book um, who I, you know, don't remember if he, he ever explicitly calls himself transgender, but we know this is a person who is having uh for all intents and purposes, a trans experience. Mm-hmm. And the way that she writes about him as like a, a full person, um, not only I think lends itself like toward compassion, but dignity, right? Like mm-hmm. he gets to be complicated um, mm-hmm. and he's not, you know, cast as like a saint and he's not a villain uh, mm-hmm. by any means. Like I would definitely say he is um, a benevolent like character. Like you, mm-hmm. you feel that from him, but like, I love how she was not like obsessed with his transness. No, like, you get to know him and like his hopes and his fears and his personality in a way that to me is the best case scenario of what we're trying to lead others toward and like engaging transness, um, mm-hmm. you know, and maybe like, that's just my experience. Like I just happened to like, really like this person, you know, that she's writing about. And I was like, Oh, I can kind of see myself in what was going on, you know, for him. And mm-hmm. um, so, yeah, that was such a great read. I recommend that one to anybody too. Um, I love that book. I, I flew through it. I was, it was one of my favorite books. I read it. I think it came out in 2020. Did it? I read it then in 2020 and it was my favorite book of that year. Yeah. Loved it. Uh, cannot possibly like add enough enthusiasm to your review. Yeah. For every reason it was perfect. I've, I, it's prominently displayed currently, um, on airport shelves. Oh, okay. Everyone. The Hudson News, you know, that little bookstore that... Friggin' love it. Here for it. Is in every airport. I don't think I've ever been to an airport that didn't have the Hudson News. Um, I don't know who... Truly, it's it's an American icon. Like, there's... <laughs> I, I, <laughs> is there a more successful store and bookstore, brick and mortar, than the little airport Hudson News? Probably not, honestly. Right. They've withstood Amazon's rise to power. Yeah. Yeah, so, yeah, I saw The Vanishing Half is prominently featured uh, at all of the airport uh, bookseller stands, and I liked that for her. And Amazing. I know it's being adapted into a series. And I I'm can't wait. Very excited about it. Um, so, yeah, that is definitely something I recommend to people as well. I do... So, all these books I mentioned, though, I... So... The books, the Black on Both Sides and Decolonizing Transgender 101, both of those were published, like you mentioned, through a university. Mm, Um, mm -hmm. And so they, that's how they were able, you know, to get the deal that they received. But I do wonder about these other books, like what, you know, went into the process, like of the cell and like how, 
you know, a Brit, like, you know, had the mother's, like, was a runaway success. Like, mm-hmm. it's all, again, wonderful book. Um, I, I read the mother's after I read the vanishing half though, which, mm. um, was not most people's journey with her, uh, writing. I will I, say fiction books sell. So you sell a nonfiction book on a proposal. So like the idea of what the book will be in terms of like chapter outlines and descriptions and like a couple sample chapters. Mm-hmm. You probably know this, but just for context. And then you sell a fiction book based on the completed manuscript. And those two books you mentioned are Braiding Sweetgrass and The Vanishing Half are both mm-hmm. such gorgeous books that uh, it makes sense that you read those and you're like, yes, absolutely. We will give you hundreds of thousands of dollars because mm-hmm. this is a runaway bestseller. And mm-hmm. so I think that that is actually one advantage of Fiction writing, fiction writing, I believe, is even harder to succeed in yeah. uh, based on what I've read in interviews. But if you're that good, uh, you have the advantage of your work being seen in its final form and people being like in bidding wars over it. So, yeah. Uh, are you interested in writing fiction? I would love to. I would way rather write fiction. It just sounds so scary because I have no idea how. <laughs> right. Well, so but I want to dabble in it. My question was, uh, you know, we talked about your book not as um, your story, but as, you know, an entry point into a larger social critique. But I am curious what you think about using your own story, you know, as a part of something that like a adapted into like a fictional story in general i think that's awesome and i would love to do that and i love when people do that i think it's more like getting the tools to be able to do that Mm -hmm. is the the hard part to me it's easier you know to it's it's more my own story is more accessible and it's a little more straightforward of a process Mm -hmm. so that's the intimidating factor for me, but I think there are a lot of advantages to fictionalizing and um, it also, yeah, there, there are many layers of advantage to that, that I would be curious to try. I'm going to dabble in. Yeah. Uh, I was going to ask if you'd started doing that in the all. near. Yes. I have not quite gotten there because I'm just still adjusting to like my life and schedule and right. routines, but I am, it is very much on the horizon and top of mind for me to start playing with that. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah, it's something that is very interesting to me um, because I I guess I've had different spots and moments in my life where somebody said, you should write a book. You should write a book. And I said, I, is this your nice way of saying I talk too much Um, (laughs) is always kind of my thought about that. Um, But I've never been interested in actually writing a memoir proper, whether it be my story or, you know, an entry point to a larger social critique. I am very interested in, like, the made-up version uh, Mm -hmm. of things I've seen, done, experienced, and have been true for my family. Mm -hmm. Um, That, to me, uh, is exciting, and that, to me, is, like, a fun kind of creative exercise because... Uh, to me, that is like where you really get to live into like this particularity as like universality, like space. Mm-hmm. Um, 
yeah, like, what does it mean to, like, draw something out, you know, from your own experience in a way that invites more people in? Because mm-hmm. this, this, to me, you know, kind of back to the Elizabeth Gilbert question, how does this become the best-selling memoir of all time? Um, I certainly think, like, the escapism is a part of it uh, for many people. But um, enough people had to see something of themselves inside of her story. Mm-hmm. And even if so much of that is about her, so much of that is about just her own thoughts and experiences, uh, the way she wrote about them w- felt invitational. Mm-hmm. To mm-hmm. And relatable. Yes. Yes. And um, I, I don't think it was just an aspiration. I don't think it was just this sort of like intellectual like vacation. Um, I I think... She, like, she very, it's not that, I'm not saying she, like, adapted, like, her story into fiction, but I think she wrote about it in in a a narratively, like, inviting way. Mm -hmm. And that, yeah, that's what I think about, like, adapting one's own stories or, you know, uh, what they, what they have seen, you know, into something, um, fiction that i don't know it's cool to me you're a great writer miles i would love to read a book from you someday if you ever feel led to follow that thread yeah i yeah i i'm very interested in screenwriting specifically oh samesies that would Um, that sounds so fun to me Yes. And so I, I have friends who are screenwriters and I love kind of listening to their process and what it looks like for them to write up a, a treatment and do that sort of thing. So Maybe we need to write a pilot. Yeah. Who, who knows what <laughs> can happen? Anything can happen. Anything is possible, Miles. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm trying to really believe that. I didn't always believe that. I lived a very limited uh uh, way of thinking about my life and career and what was possible, but really trying to embrace uh, the what else that's out there right now. So I am here for this. I'm here for you. Miles is always so fun. You have so much insight. You're such a delightful person and I'm excited. I think the same of you. So let's just keep doing this same place. Probably different time. Different time next week. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Take care, Miles. Bye, everybody. Bye.